would you feel like if you saw your dead mother or your dead father standing at the end of your bed, asking you to come with them on a journey to the next world? Would that be a scene from a late-night horror movie or a comforting thought that there is indeed life after death? Well, two-thirds of nurses, doctors and hospice carers say that they have seen such deathbed visions happening to their patients in the last few weeks, days or hours of life. But how do such visions stand up to scientific investigation? And how do they sit with traditional Christian beliefs? All questions I'll be raising in today's discussion. I'm Alison Hilliard, and you're listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none, for people who think there's more to life than the material world, and who want to grapple with life's deepest questions. Perhaps there is no greater question than what happens when we die. To help us explore that, I'm joined by Elaine Storkey, a Christian theologian and philosopher, by Judith Pigeon of the Martin C. Isle Trust, which encourages people to think and talk openly about death, and by Peter Fenwick, a neuropsychiatrist at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London and author of the book The Art of Dying. Peter, you've studied end-of-life experiences and you've numerous accounts of relatives, of nurses, doctors, carers, who've all seen people about to die seeing visions of their relatives. Just tell me a bit more about those visions and what form they take. We gathered data from hospices, nursing homes, and also I went on Richard and Judy, very good source of experiences because people wrote in. And in the end, we had about 1,500 experiences as well as our more formal study of carers. And what they said and what most people found was that they were dead relatives who came. And when we analyzed the visions, they were mainly parents, dead parents who came. That was 25%. Then after that, 17% of spiritual figures. And then you go on down through brothers, sisters. In our sample in this country, only 3% were angels. So mainly it's dead relatives. And what did the angels or the other visitors, what did they do? There's a particular way that they behave. Quite often they are seen, first of all, outside the hospice. They may be at the window or they may be in the corridors. Then they come into the room and talk to the person who's dying. And then, very interestingly, they will sit on the bed. Now, why do they sit on the bed? Well, if you have a sick child, you know exactly why you sit on the bed. It's enormously comforting for the person. So they then sit on the bed, sometimes hold the hands of the dying and talk to them. But the most important thing of all, once the dying have seen the people who come, their language changes because the visitors say they're going to take them on a journey. Which produces a great sense of comfort? A huge sense of comfort because the dying's language changes. It's no longer, I'm going to die, although, of course, the dying don't often say that. But what they do start saying is, when I leave here, I'll be going on a journey. When I'm picked up, do you see? So there is a, a thrust towards continuation after death. Judith, tell us about your own experiences that fit in with this. Well, when my mother was dying, she found that she put her hands ready as if she were dying. She hadn't any religious views at that point. Um, She prepared herself to death. She then went on a journey where she was told by two dark angels, your time is not yet. You must return. You have work to do. 
Now, this she told me after her recovery. It really was a recovery. She recovered completely after this. But did you believe her absolutely? Did you ever think, well, maybe it didn't really happen to her? Strangely, I did believe her, but I can understand that many people wouldn't. The reason I believed her was because she didn't have that religious background. It had come quite from outside her. She hadn't been looking for it. Elaine, what do you make of this? Is there anything in what either Judith or Peter has said that makes you as a Christian feel uncomfortable? No, not at all. The wonderful thing is it echoes the fundamental position of Christianity that is that this life is more than what we see, hear, feel and touch. And that there is a sense of continuity, of eternity, that human beings are not just here for three score years and ten and then they're snuffed out forever. So it's really in keeping with that, that the very nature of our humanity is eternal. And of course for Christians it's, it's eternal because it's made by God in the image of God to reflect the love and the goodness of God and so on, which we do very partially in this world and sometimes not at all. But the promise that there will be a world where this is fulfilled sounds to be very similar to what I'm hearing across the table here today. Well, what about this idea of visitors coming to fetch you? I was in Assisi recently and there's the tomb of St Francis of Assisi with his hands outstretched and angels coming to get him. And that would fit very clearly with Christian theology. Oh yes, there are many, many Christian visions, especially of the fathers who do see angels coming, almost mounting a welcome together and calling them home. And in fact, my own relatives have gone through something similar. You've seen it. My husband's grandmother was with her daughter, my mother-in-law, and she suddenly said, oh, they've come for me. I'm going. Kiss me quickly, Doris. I'm going. They've come for me. And my mother-in-law had no doubt whatsoever that the angels had come to get her. But Peter, you said it wasn't always angels. In fact, more usually it was not angels who came. How common is it that the person who sees the vision has to be religious or have some sort of religious belief? We have a number of people who are religious and we have a number of people who are not religious. The religious ones in our series don't necessarily see angels. They do see parents and they do see spiritual beings, but not necessarily the conventional angels. People have no belief, still see them, still see their parents come. And the wonderful thing is that we have a number of accounts from the relatives of the dying just at the moment of dying when they've had absolutely no belief that there was anything after death when in their weakened state just before they die turn to the relative that's there and say, I was quite wrong. It's not like that at all. Well, in fact, there's been some speculation recently, hasn't there, been that Apple's Steve Jobs oh, yes. <laughs> had a vision when he was at the point of dying. Yes, this was reported by, I think, his wife. And looking up in wonder was the phrase she used. He said, wow, wow, wow. So the picture we have of a switching off and it's all just into black silence is not what the dying experience is the problem here, though, for sceptics who will be listening to this who haven't either experienced it themselves or don't know much about this, who would say, well, actually, you can't prove this and there can be no reality here? It's a real problem and an enormously interesting problem. And the way that you start to solve it is you, first of all, 
collect the facts. Do people see these visions? Yes, they do. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're collecting subjective experiences. You're collecting personal accounts rather than facts, aren't Uh, you? No, you're doing more than that. What you're doing is you're collecting whether a set of experiences are coherent in themselves and whether they point in a particular direction. One of the things we find is that the most factual bit of it is that the dying see them then the next people who see the same vision, so they're not hallucinations at this point, are children. And then the next people who see them are the hospice staff and the relatives. Now, hospice staff and relatives are very rare. Children are less rare. And of course, they're seen by the people themselves who have the vision. So you can immediately then take it out of the realm of hallucination. Well, can you? Because couldn't it be drug-induced hallucination? Not in the hospice staff and the children, I hope. No, of course not, (laughs) but in the people who are experiencing them. Um, Yes, this is one of the questions which is always put up. Well, look, uh, all they're doing is they've been given too much morphine. Well, what you have to do is to understand what the difference is between a morphine or a toxic because don't forget these people are dying, so their kidneys are all shot and their livers aren't functioning, between an organic hallucination, as they're called, and a deathbed vision, and they're quite different. For example, a drug-induced hallucination or an organic hallucination is picking or pulling at the bedclothes, trying to pick up things from the floor, seeing shapes moving on the wall. It's nothing well-formed and coherent like this. And also the response of the people to them is not like the response to the deathbed visions. Well, couldn't they, for example, come from chemical changes in the brain as the brain is shutting down towards death? Well, you'd have to give me some indication that these sorts of visions occur when brain physiology is changed in a particular way. And you're going to have a lot of trouble doing this. Do you have a problem here, Elaine, that these visions can't be scientifically proven? Well, in a sense, one always wants to say, show us more evidence. Let's have the the scientists, the neurologists, the brain specialists and so on working on this. But there's also a worry with that because an awful lot of science comes from the presupposition that we are just our brains. We are just our neural networks. We are just our genetic material. And actually what Peter is suggesting, and he's got sciences also on his side, I mean, I'm hearing quite a lot of experimentation there, is that no, we're not. We're something bigger than that. What, in fact, Elaine, do Christians believe happens at the very point of death? Oh, gosh. I mean, Christian theologians have battled with this for centuries. And in fact, Christians differ on what they believe. There's a branch of the church that believes that Christians are welcomed into a place called purgatory, where they hang around for a long time until they've kind of almost atoned for some of the things that they did wrong in this life. There are others who believe they go into a deep sleep and are woken by the resurrection. There are others that believe that time ends. And actually, what you move into is a resurrection period, a new reality, a new eternity, which has been here in this life but only partially, and you've been moving towards that. In truth, we simply don't know. And all we have to go on is both Christian revelation, the experience of other people, and the message from Jesus Christ, and we believe was raised from the dead and came back in bodily form, but then went again. So you put all these things together and you have a guess. What would your guess be? I would go with those people who feel that when we die, we enter a new reality. It's a bigger and better and more fulfilled and, if you like, consummated reality of what 
what we've experienced the best of in this world. And we are united with God. And the sins, the wrongdoings and so on that we have actually committed in this life fall away because we have been forgiven them. And we enter into a much more peaceful state, a much more beautiful state. I suppose there's a fairly fundamental problem for any Christian who would believe that the soul, if you like, goes to sleep until the day of judgment because there wouldn't be that physical form to come back to visit or to take or to collect relatives. Yes. And this is why, in a sense, the squabble, if you like, in ancient literature between the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body is a very pertinent one for Christians. We do believe that the body is resurrected. It doesn't mean it looks like it looks now. I can't imagine what a resurrected body would look like. But you've got a glimpse of it in the New Testament, in the Gospels, through Jesus who walked through walls but yet still had nail prints in his hands. So it's the, the writer's trying to kind of imagine and describe what they saw in human terms about human bodies, but we all know it was different from that. It was bigger than that. Couldn't the bigger picture that these visions are pointing us towards be that perhaps there's less separation between this world and the next than we think? I think so too. I mean, I was fascinated many years ago reading a story that C.S. Lewis wrote and I nearly fell off my chair. I was a teenager at the time and he talks about grappling with an issue he just couldn't get right. He'd become a Christian. He was already a well-known author. He couldn't get his mind around this and he was struggling, frustrated and so on. And suddenly, opposite him, sat down J.B. Phillips in a chair opposite him who had been dead for some time. He recognised him immediately. He said that he was recognisable. They discussed the issue. Phillips produced the answer to the problem he was struggling with and then disappeared. And not only did that help Lewis understand the whole resurrection of the body, but this sense of continuity, that we are one with those who have gone before and we will continue to be one. And they are accessible to some people in various forms. I suppose, too, Celtic Christianity has traditionally pointed us to thin places, places where there is a very thin division between earth and heaven. And I don't know whether you think it could be said that death is the ultimate thin place. Absolutely, absolutely. And as you say, Elaine, it is accessible to some, not to all. But hopefully, the more we talk, we hear of the things that people have experienced but have been far too afraid to mention. Unless they be ridiculed. And I'm actually encouraged to realise that it's people who haven't got an overt religious faith or haven't nailed their colours and certain masks and so on who are experiencing these. Because if it were just religious people, we would be suspicious about it. I mean, it would sound too much like wish fulfilment or wanting to verify one's religious stance. But it's an issue for humanity, for the whole of our humanness. And we are one in our humanness. No, we share characteristics that we have together, whatever we believe fundamentally. The interesting thing, and everybody who's dying must listen very carefully to what I'm going to say next, and that is that you can negotiate with your deathbed visitor a little bit. You can say to them, well, listen, my son's coming over from the States and I want him to be here before I die and I want to see him, so please don't come Tuesday, please come Thursday. Now, you may get an extension, but if you say it's a wild hospice party, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think they will. But the other thing that I think is important is that the actual death process itself is magical. And we've taken all the magic out of it. Deathbed visitors, astonishing that your parents or you should feel that your parents come for you. The next thing is at the actual time of death or just before death, light in the room, accounts of sparkles in the room, radiant light in the room, got lots of accounts of that. And then the most wonderful thing is connectedness, actually at the moment of death. 
And we've looked at these, and these are what are called deathbed coincidences, and it's driven by the dying person. And what he does is he goes to visit, or she goes to visit somebody, can be in the next door room, next door town, across the globe. And we have a wonderful example of a mother who is in Australia, and the son is in England. The son, in fact, is a sailor and she knows he's a sailor. She wakes up in what she says is a dream, and there, coming towards her, dripping wet, is her son. So is it like they've got permission to come to say goodbye? That's absolutely right. They have permission to come and say goodbye. But the thing which is interesting about the son and about many of these deathbed coincidences is that they come to give a message. She saw him transform in the light, So a spiritual light came around him and he said, I'm okay, mum, don't worry. And then he vanished. So one of the things they do is they make this connection and then they give a message. Messages are much more common if you're sleeping at the time and they appear in a dream. But much more problematic if you're getting a message when you're in sleep or in a dream. Well, ask the person who has the dream. Then the validity of the dreams is, in fact, given to it by them. They say these dreams are special dreams. They know they're right. And like the woman in Australia, when the clock came to a decent hour, she rang her relatives to find out that her son had drowned at the time that he came in the dream to her. So there is a cross-validation on it like that. Elaine, does that bother you any more than the traditional vision of somebody coming to take you to the next world and so on, these deathbed coincidences? Do you think they're of a different order? I mean, clearly people feel that I ought to be more bothered about this as a Christian because Christianity is a creedal faith and we we have very strong assertions about what we believe. But there's an awful lot that Christianity doesn't know but still trusts in and believes in because it believes that God has made us all and this is God's world. So in answer to your question, I would say, no, it doesn't actually trouble me because if this is the world that God has made, which is far bigger than any human mind or understanding can actually grasp, we were always going to be finding out new connections and new things. And if we are persons in relationship, because this is how God has made us, then those relationships are going to be reaching out all the time, irrespective of what separates us and the distances and and even death itself. And so for me, it is entirely compatible. I really believe that this is the world God has made and our sons matter to us enormously, especially if they are in a position where they're now going to die and we don't know anything about it. And how comforting it must be for a mother to have that kind of apparition, that awareness. Is comfort then, Judith, the key point here, that really we're barking up the wrong tree if we're trying to scientifically prove it? But the fact is they are comforting, not just to the dying, but they're comforting to the people who receive them. Yes, I have a case in point of a gentleman who was terrified of dying. He then had the feeling that he was within his dream, that he was on the bridge of a boat, and he was in charge. And when he woke, he realised that he was safe, he was in charge. That journey was in his hands, as it were. And this gave him enormous comfort. He'd had not one single moment of fear or anxiety thereafter. And there's also the comfort for the families who are left behind, that that link can continue. But what about for those who don't receive such visions? I mean, I can see how wonderfully comforting it is if you're told that your son or your mother has a message for you or you have a vision. What about those people who don't receive that message? 
That is a fundamental human question, isn't it? I mean, it's a question that people ask Christians. What happens to all those people who are not healed when they pray and have hands laid on them? And what happens to all those people in the Gospels who didn't encounter Jesus and didn't get resolved from their leprosy and so on? And I have no idea what the answer to that is. And it's, it's in a sense, it is a problem for our humanity again. But Judith has something probably more to say. I'm just thinking that this need to explain everything, to understand <laughs> everything, to have scientific proof. Can we not just accept that this is how it is? One thing which we're all missing, because we're not in that situation, is that we're not dying. The actual death process itself is something which is quite different from what normally goes on. We're all in our normal state now, but when you're dying, it's very different. Well, maybe that's one of the key points of having a discussion about what happens when we die, that it can open those issues of what process you should go through and what you should be thinking about or what you should be doing before you die, Elaine. Yes, and reconciliation is so important. There's an awful lot of reconciliation often necessary as one approaches death. There are people we've hurt, there are things that we've done wrong, there are things that we regret. And I think, therefore, that time and that space really ought to be written into our deathbed procedures, and it isn't. Very often people are rushed through or drugged to death or whatever, and that space and that need is ignored. I'm going to have all my grandchildren around me because I see death as very much part of life. It's not something which you sweep away. Yeah, OK, I'm going to die. Well, all the kids now are going to die. They have hamsters who die. And they ask this question, are you going to die, Grandpa? Certainly, yeah, of course I am. You're going to be there and we're going to enjoy it together. You know, you've got to have a different framework. How are you going to die, Judith, and enjoy it? I want to be very conscious if I can. I want to know what's happening. I want to make my journey as clearly as I can. I'd love my family there if they would like to be. I've written it all down. <laughs> they know where it is. We've <laughs> talked so about it. But at the end I say, but whatever you want, do it. Elaine? I want to die in a state of peace and reconciliation, but also of not self-delusion. I want to be able to look at myself and see where I've gone wrong and what I've done wrong and have that space to bring that before God and be forgiven for that and know that I'm forgiven. And where I've hurt people, where I've been unkind or impatient, to hear them forgive me also. What you're saying makes absolute sense to have a good death, to prepare yourself for death. In some ways, it sounds like quite a a cosy, well-formulated death. And I don't know what that says to me about preparing for the death of a young child, for example, or preparing for the death of a young soldier in battle. How important do you think it is that we don't make death a sugar-coated process? Oh, vitally important. The sheer experience of loss, the heartbrokenness that some people go through and never recover, the experience of desolation is something that we have to take on board about our common humanness and be with those who suffer and those who grieve. Thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to Elaine Storkey, to Judith Pigeon and to Peter Fenwick. I'm Alison Hilliard and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who think there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.